In today's interview, we speak with environmental law expert Mr. Jim Canizzo on wind energy and its impact on the Air Force, DOD, and our national security interests. Here are a few clips from part one of today's show. The interplay of, of operations and, and, and law here is a very strong, very important one. A GE turbine that's going to be 850 feet tall, it has blades that are 367 feet long each. And that's it's just gargantuan. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. This helps us to grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. Today's interview is the second consecutive interview with an environmental law subject matter expert. In this interview, we have the pleasure to speak with Mr. Jim Canizo, a retired Air Force JAG and the current senior attorney advisor in the Mission Sustainment and Planning Branch of the Environmental Law Field Support Center in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we plan to discuss the wind energy boom and impact on military operations, including some of the biggest wind energy challenges faced both within the Air Force and DOD. And we plan to continue our discussion on the interplay between environmental law and military operational law and how this impacts our national security. Sir, thank you for coming on to talk with us today. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for giving us a voice. So our guest today, Mr. Jim Canizo, is a senior attorney advisor in the Mission Sustainment and Planning Branch of the Environmental Law Field Support Center within the Environmental Law and Litigation Division, Operations International Law Directorate of the Office of the Judge Advocate General, located in San Antonio, Texas. The Mission Sustainment and Planning Branch provides legal advice to Air Force attorneys at all levels of command and to Air Force engineers at the Air Force Civil Engineer Center, on planning documents for Air Force projects in the United States and overseas. Mr. Canizzo is the branch's expert on issues involving range and training route airspace and encroachment, including off-base energy project sightings. Sir, could you start off by providing a little more background on your current duty position and what you do? So my in my current job, a lot of what I do is planning documents. So when the Air Force proposes an action, they have to follow the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 and do environmental analysis before they can implement those decisions. And so, so for instance, if you're a base in New Mexico and you want to expand your airspace, you can't just do it without environmental analysis and without involving the public. So we do an environmental assessment, environmental impact uh, statement, or whatever the appropriate level of, of NEPA analysis is before we do that. So that's a lot of what I do. The other, uh, another big portion of my duties uh, is what used to be called encroachment. Now we call it mission sustainment. And we look at proposed developments near bases to see if they're compatible. We may make comments to the, the zoning and planning authorities about the compatibility of those developments. And we look at uh, wind farms, for example, and other proposals under our airspace or near our radars. And that's a large portion of my job. And that's really a fast growing portion of what, 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 what I have done due to the, due the, the boom in, in energy development in the United States. I mean, I've read 
uh, articles by the uh, Department of Energy that say that we're now already at close to 10% of, of U.S. energy generated by alternate sources, about 8% of it by wind farms and, and 2% or so by, by solar. And there are projections that by 2050, we may be up as high as 35% of our energy is generated by alternate energy. So yeah, that that's uh, it's good for greening the environment. It's good for reducing emissions, but it causes a lot of mission impacts along our flying training routes. It also uh, spinning turbines of uh, uh, wind farms causes uh, clutter on our radars and makes them much less effective. So that that's really the the two main areas I do planning and and the mission sustainment component. Yes, sir. In our prior interview with Mr. Joseph Miller, we, we took a more strategic view at environmental law as a whole. And in this interview, um, like you've just kind of alluded to here, I definitely want to hone in on your particular expertise dealing with wind energy and wind farm mitigation. Um, you've already kind of alluded to that a bit here on the current state of wind energy and wind farm technology in the U.S. But could you offer a little more insight on that? I mean, what is the kind of current energy uh, production of, of wind energy within the U.S.? How has that grown over time, and how does that compare to other countries? Okay, the the U.S. energy, uh, alternate energy, has really grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, the last estimate I saw from the the uh, DOE was that there, uh, there are close to 60,000 wind turbines in the United States, and that one of the phenomena – is that they are growing taller and taller. Uh, when they first came out uh, 10 years ago, really first started proliferating 10 years ago, your typical uh, turbine was between 300 and 400 feet. Uh, then the last several years, it's it's really uh, gone up to about 500 feet, and now we're seeing a lot of 650 feet tall turbines. So that creates some some major challenges under our military training routes. So keep in mind the military, uh, we have a lot of low level training routes across the United States. And unfortunately, a lot of them are in, in wind rich areas. For for wind farms on the other side of the coin industry, they can't just build anywhere. So they can't just pick some isolated area uh, of a desert and remote area and build all their turbines there. They have to, they have maps called that map out the wind rich areas. A lot of them are along the, like say the Texas coast or in Oklahoma or in Washington state, uh, increasing like in, in North Dakota, Colorado areas. And they're all in wind rich areas. And unfortunately we, that's also where we have a lot of military training routes. We also have a lot of, of NORAD radars and uh, wind turbines. The, it's not, the fact that it's an obstruction that's tall, that, that's really the, the main problem we have with, with aircraft, but it's the spinning of the blades. The spinning of the blades uh, of a wind turbine creates clutter on a radar and makes it much less effective. For an air traffic control radar, if an aircraft is flying near turbines, he's, the tower controller is probably not going to be able to see those aircraft and control them and keep them apart from colliding on his radar scope. And for, for NORAD, their ability to detect targets and track them is much diminished when the turbines are spinning, that target's flying near wind turbines. So it's a increasingly uh, multiplying phenomena across the United States, but again, mostly in, in, in wind-rich areas. Uh, and on the airspace end of it, 
you know, if you look, if you ever look at the, the FAA's map of the, the national airspace system, it looks like a giant spaghetti that's nearly blotted out the whole U.S. So it's not like we, the Air Force can move our training routes to other areas because a lot of those other areas are already used for, by the FAA by aviation routes. So it's a diminishing resource, uh, having land that the Air Force could use for training. And it's also, again, a finite resource that the wind industry can cite. It's got to be in a, in a wind-rich area. So, so we have a, a, a scarcity problem going several different ways that, that really causes a lot, a lot of, of a need for coordination uh, between the, the Air Force and, and the other services and, and uh, the wind industry. Yes, sir. And I would concur that it appears to be that there's been a wind energy boom over the last number of years. And as you had mentioned, when um, these wind turbines were initially being built in the U.S. and, and abroad, they, they ranged you know, 300 to 400 feet. Um, in prep for this interview, I had read online that um, from one source that there are certain wind turbines now reaching over 800 feet tall with blades as long as a football field. Yeah, that's a, a new giant turbine that GE is coming out with. Now, those are normally used for maritime uh, operations you know, out in the ocean. Uh, land-based, it, it's, it's a little shy of that, but the direction they're going, you know, it's more efficient to have bigger turbines. You only have one ground site uh, and your blades are so much bigger, you can produce uh, a large, large amount of energy from just one turbine. And, you know, the, the turbine fields are amazing how they vary. Your, your average small size field is, is typically 35 to 65 turbines, and you have a lot of medium-sized ones that that may be 65 to a few hundred, but we, we've even had a, a few uh, proposed turbine uh, farms that were in the neighborhood of 1,000 turbines. So we're talking very, very large uh, areas of land. And you can't just have turbines stacked upon each other. Turbines have to be uh, set apart from each other so that one doesn't cause turbulence that affects the other one. So when you have, like, for instance, uh, I I was dealing with, with one this afternoon in a mitigation response team. And they were talking about 35 turbines on, on about 5,000 acres. So it takes a lot of acreage for for a wind farm. Over. Yes, sir. And and it it seems that the issue is, uh, from at least a military operational standpoint, that as these turbines get bigger and bigger and the farms get bigger and bigger, they can impact military operations with respect to, like as you mentioned, military training routes, ranges, um, radar systems. Is that where you want that, sir? That's very that's very accurate, and the thing that we try to do it's it isn't an all or nothing approach. Uh, there's a federal statute that was originally passed in, in 2011. Uh, it was amended in, in 2017. Uh, it's at uh, 10 U.S. Code oh, Section 183, and it set up a uh, DoD Energy Siting Clearinghouse. And DoD is a decision maker. The services each have uh, personnel that provides inputs to DOD. And and what we do, and we're successful in most of the cases, and that's try to resolve the differences uh, through what we call a mitigation response team. That's what, what I mentioned earlier. I was on, on one of them this afternoon. And what we try to come up with is what's called, what the, what the statute calls is feasible and affordable mitigation. 
examples of such mitigation would be, can the developer rearrange the, the, the setup of, of his turbines? Can he move them to, to a different side of our, if it's, say it's a military training route, where they're not in, in the middle or a large part of the training route? If it's near a radar, can, can he make, make them shorter? Can he make them taller, but much less of them and change the array of them? There's, there's various ways of mitigating the adverse effects on, on military operations. A lot of times with radars, we do a mitigation strategy also that's called radar optimi- optimization, where the, the uh, wind farm developer will pay for a reprogramming of the software, the radar. It's not a complete cure, but it minimizes uh, the issues by mapping where the turbines are and, and, and tuning the radar software. It's not terribly expensive, it's typically $80,000, and there's authority in that statute, 10 U.S.C. 183 Alpha, for the wind farm developer to pay for that radar optimization. Uh, also, sometimes we'll do a mechanism called a curtailment agreement, well, where they will agree if we have a, a national security emergency, say if it's a NORAD radar, um, that if we, we give them notice within a few minutes, they will either uh, – turn off their, their spinning turbines or feather them. Feather is a term for making them go very, very slow. And that greatly reduces the clutter, or, or if it's if they're stopped, it, it totally reduces the clutter on the radar scopes. And then when the national emergency is over, uh, we give them the green light and then they restart them. So there's, there's a lot of different ways uh, to mitigate uh, the, the wind farm issues. And we even have, you know, some of our ones that really cause headaches. If I could interject for a second, could you just discuss kind of this process? So you mentioned the the DOD siting clearinghouse. Could you just walk our listeners through kind of how this process works? So let's say we have a developer that's looking to build a wind farm somewhere, and it may be within range of military operations. What is the process? Like, how does that go about? Because you were talking about wind farm mitigation there, which is kind of further down the road on the process. So the, the process starts with, with it can be a, an informal process where they where they come to us, tell us a general project area, and then the DOD siting clearinghouse will farm it out to whatever base, whatever commands have assets uh, in that area, and we'll get on on conference calls and hash out the details and exchange maps and emails and ideas until we figure out a way. To mitigate. That's informal mitigation. Uh, then there's also a formal mitigation, which is is what what most of them are are, and that's where they've actually filed with uh, the FAA's obstructions to navigation system. That system, it, it's been along for many many decades. It predates that the 2011 federal statute that created the the DoD Energy Siting Clearinghouse. And what that statute did, it added a layer to that that FAA uh, FAR uh, Federal Aviation Regulation Part 77 process of obstructions navigation. Uh, the the OEAAA process, that's what obstructions navigation is called. It's triggered by building a, a tower that's over 200 feet tall or very close to an airport. And so what that that federal statute in 2011 did is added a coordination layer where uh, FAA will, will notify DOD and give us the opportunity to request uh, a mitigation response team if we see issues. So 
we start out with what's called a notice of presumed hazard. And that's our starting point. It's not by any means a, a, a bar or a prohibition on a, on a developer moving forward. It's just, it really starts the process of the mitigation response team and the dialogue. And we talk at, and, and, the vast majority of cases, we figure out a way to come up with a mitigation agreement. If it's uh, if it's just changing the locations, normally they can just cancel some of their filings with the FAA, and then we do what's called a siding memo. If it requires uh, more formal components, say for instance that that radar optimization or a curtailment agreement or some other sort of very formal mechanism that isn't just canceling the 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 filings that are in an area that causes problems then we do a formal mitigation agreement signed by the developer signed by uh, DOD siting clearinghouse and the Air Force uh, so that that we have enforceability of, of the agreement to make sure I'm tracking this correctly there's two main processes for this which would be the informal and then the formal review there's less informal reviews there versus the informal reviews and it seems that to submit an informal review that seems to be done to kind of get an idea on where DOD or and or Air Force stands on particular issues? It's more to give them a geographical idea. So, so it takes a lot of engineering to plan out a wind farm. They have to, to do a lot of coordination with, with local regulatory authorities, local residents, uh, do environmental due diligence, and so, so very often it takes them a long time to get precise locations until to, to the point where they have those filings with FAA for the instructions and navigation system. That requires coordinates. So what they'll do is if they're if they have a concept, they will often come to us for the informal consultation, uh, the the informal coordination. So that's that's an informal process. So normally. In the informal, they won't have precise locations. They'll have an overall geographic area, and they'll see what what issues uh, it triggers. Yes, sir. And looking also uh, at the numbers from the Military Aviation and Installation Assurance Site Siting Clearinghouse website, it looks that let formal reviews have went up by over three hundred percent from two thousand and twelve, with a with over seventeen hundred reviews to 2019 with over 5,100 reviews. And that same source shows that informal reviews have also went up, I don't know, 250 to 300% um, as well. What is causing the dramatic rise in all these reviews? Well, I mean, big picture wise, it's that the trend towards switching to alternate energy. Again, 10 years ago, it was low single digits the percentage of our electricity was generated from from wind farms, and now it's eight percent already. And again, the projection of DOE is it could be as high as thirty five percent by twenty fifty. So that's the 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 macro phenomena, the macro trend. The other thing is uh, the production tax credit. There have been a, around for a number of years energy credits that can pay up to thirty percent of the developer's project cost. And there was a lot of fear the last few years because they were only renewed one year at a time. So there was a lot of fear that the developers will they want to get their foot in the door and get a project filed and, and book the energy tax credit. They don't have to under the way the Internal Revenue Service uh, has interpreted that credit. They don't have to have the whole farm all built out 
to get the credit. They basically have to pass uh, completion thresholds, which can be completed basically by buying equipment. So uh, they normally won't spend tens of millions of dollars. And some of these projects are billion-dollar projects. A typical, even, say, a medium-sized uh, wind turbine field may be $100 million or $200 million. So we're, we're talking some large amounts of money. So they will normally won't spend the money to book the credit unless they, they have a, a fairly a fair amount of certainty over the location. And so that's why they, we – they do the MRT processes, and and they try to get along uh, the MRT process as far as they can. You know, it's it's a it's an accounting game whether they can book the credit. We've had a lot of filings this year because right now the credit is due to expire December 31st, and it hasn't been yet renewed by Congress. They have also uh, lowered the credit, uh, the percentage that 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 uh, can be taken. The last few years, it's gone down every year a significant amount, and there's a lot of speculation. Will it will it be renewed? Uh, as it was last year, it was renewed in December uh, on a one-year renewal kind of last-minute thing as part of the, the budget process. So that, that's what's driving the short-term uh, high numbers is that, that the uncertainty surrounding the production tax credit. Yes, sir. I think you'd mentioned that to me too, that you were working pretty diligently on all those additional uh, submissions uh, because of that tax credit that looks to be ending at the end of 2020. It seems too that production of renewable energy projects like wind farms would be good, um, you know, generally speaking, from a national security standpoint to have renewable energy resources. However, that also has an impact on our operations within the military and um, at large. It seems to be somewhat of a balancing act here with how you deal with with um, these issues. Would you say that's a fair? It definitely is, and they Congress acknowledges that in the statute when they pass the statute, it says that it acknowledges the both values of uh, military readiness. Uh, military operations and also uh, alternate energy and, and switching to cleaner energy. And, and what Congress did is said that we have to fully uh, consider feasible and affordable mitigation and only as a last resort what will will DOD object to a project based on its uh, effect on, on national security or our military operations. And that's it's only been done uh, a handful of times. We normally are able to figure out uh, mitigation that resolves the issues to everyone's satisfaction. Yes, sir. And based on some of the resources I had read, it said the clearinghouses made very few unacceptable risk determinations out of likely thousands of wind energy submissions. Is that your understanding as well? That's true. Now, there is one other ph- phenomenon. Sometimes a developer, rather than then have an objection, and a lot of developers don't want that to be public, that they made a proposal that, that created an objection, they'll withdraw their project. So that will happen sometimes too. So could you also talk a little more detail about wind farm mitigation? I mean, you've kind of all discussed it a, a bit already, but what exactly is wind farm mitigation? And is this where you're working to try to meet the intent of Congress? Exactly. And it really varies... If we're talking low-level training routes, uh, say, for instance, South Texas, and you have uh, T-38s, T-37s, T-6s flying in a low-level training route uh, near Del Rio, 
your way of mitigation is quite different than what you would do for a radar, let's say, for instance, a NORAD radar. Normally, you would like the turbines to be lower if possible, or you'd like them to move them laterally outside our training route. Training routes are, are usually 10 to 12 miles wide. And so often you can move them outside the route or to one edge of the route. So you at least have a clear six or eight miles of your route uh, open. So that's usually lateral moves or trying to, to persuade the developer to do shorter turbines. That's, that's the mitigation you normally would do for, for aircraft and, and low-level flying training routes. Now, for, for a, a radar, it, it's a lot different. It's all geared on, on the line of sight. You know, radars have what they call a line of sight. Sometimes if people can move their turbines you know, into lower terrain, all of it, that very, very rarely is a solution because your higher terrain is a wind, wind, more wind-rich area. Uh, but they can also change the the array of uh, a radial pattern mitigates to some degree the radar interference. There's also this the strategy I talked about earlier about radar optimization or curtailment agreement. Because on a radar, it's not like it is with an aircraft. The mere height of the turbine as an obstruction that an aircraft could could crash into or is going to have to go a long ways away to avoid it. For radar, it's the clutter. So if they will stop or feather their blades uh, through a curtailment agreement for that short amount of time that that NORAD needs that air, air surveillance capability in that area, that can resolve it. So you have real different strategies, strategies depending on what your facts are. What percentage do you think you deal with between the wind um, energy farms and radar? The, the radar has become much more of an issue with the proliferation of, of wind turbine farms. NORAD has criteria that what they call saturation, that when an area of a, of a radar's coverage becomes so saturated, it, they can't meet effectiveness ratio, rates that they're supposed to meet on detecting objects. And they've, they have several of their large radars, which they have made very well known to the wind industry energy that those radars are saturated at. So they're going to have much less ability to mitigate any new proposed wind farms in those areas. Now, some of their other radars are in areas where there's a lot less wind farms, so they don't have the saturation issue yet. They haven't reached it. So we've had a lot more MRTs on for NORAD the last two years, so way, way more. It used, they used to be a small fraction of our, our mitigation response teams, probably 10 to 15%, and now, now they're probably – 30 to 40%. So the radar issue is because of the saturation issue, the proliferation of wind farms has become much more of an issue. So, sir, I'm thinking of a lot of our listeners here that are perhaps working at a base legal office or, and or uh, are civilians that, that may be living near one of these wind farms. For the folks that are working at base legal office and, and maybe there's a project that, like this underway, what is their involvement in this and or with your team? And also with landowners, what involvement can landowners have in this process? That's very complex. In terms of the MRTs, occasionally we will have base attorneys uh, call in and participate, but these are, are very technical issues. So normally they do a lot more listening than, than active engagement. We always welcome 
base input, you know, that's who we rely on is the aviators from the base. When you're talking like low level training routes, they're, they're the ones who run the show because it's all about safety and they're the ones who know they fly, how they fly. I don't know how they fly. I don't, don't claim to be an aviator. Uh, I learn a lot in these calls about operations uh, and, and really supporting the mission. And it's, it's really a, a, a fun phenomenon for me to be in, in a mission enabler and after the end of the day to, to, to think about how we saved training routes or we saved radar capabilities that enable the Air Force to do its mission. So th- this is one where the Air Force lawyers, we're not just paper pushers or whatever uh, term you want to use. We're enabling the mission in, in a very real way. Uh, in terms of landowners, you know, there, that's a, a lot of tension. The, the base doesn't normally deal with the landowners. On a very rare occasion, we'll have a landowners on the MRT calls. It has happened a few times. Normally, it's the, the wind farm project developer. If it's an informal, they usually don't even have land leases yet, so they, they don't really know for sure who their, their landowners will be. If it's a formal, they probably got leases or, or in the, at least in negotiations to have leases. Some of those will have the landowners on the calls. And, you know, the other thing, the phenomenon is to uh, really enforce is through that whole clearinghouse process, we've gone through how the very few cases do we actually have an objection. But even if we were to have an objection and FAA were to to enroll in their system as a, a formal obstructions, obstruction to navigation uh, and, and, and sustain our objection, it still isn't a veto. It, this isn't like uh, in other other forums where where FAA is a, a, a strict regulator. It's a, Again, it's a recommendation. Normally, those recommendations are followed because people don't want to cause safety issues, and oftentimes they have problems uh, getting financing or insurance if, they, if their project is deemed an instruction to navigation. But even, even in the ultimate end of things, uh, we don't have a veto. DOD certainly doesn't have a veto. We make a recommendation in the system, and the service – we don't even have the ability to enter an objection. It's only DOD. So the service makes a recommendation to DOD who enters it in FA system. So, sir, we've discussed kind of some of the operational challenges and wanted to just give you a little more time to discuss that. What is the interplay more or less with wind energy today and our operational law landscape as it pertains to our national security? The interplay is now, ever since 2011, we've had that energy siting clearinghouse statute that enables us through through FAA's obstructions to navigation processes to have a voice uh, and to try to work out mitigation strategies on wind farms. So operationally, uh, it's that this process is really important. We can get uh, wind farm uh, project uh, developers to to move some of their turbines or, or all their turbines in a proposed wind farm out of our, our uh, low-level training routes, or we can get them to move them out of the line of sight of our NORAD or uh, air traffic control or weather radar. Or we can get them to do mitigation strategies like uh, radar optimization, where they reprogram the radar, or uh, curtailment, where they agree to, to f- stop or feather the blades during time periods, critical time periods of, of national security that we need those uh, turbine blades stop spinning so that our radars can can see much more clearly what's going on in those those certain areas. So 
the interplay of, of operations and, and, and law here is a very strong, very important one. Because with, without this, we, we have no really formal way to engage with uh, wind farm developers. And this system, it's not just the ability to voice uh, the concerns and, and to uh, negotiate mitigation strategy. It's also just the notification, that whole process. Without it, uh, it would be, you know, needle in the haystack sort of uh, thing because with this process, we, we basically get tied into and we have access to FAA system and we see the filings and they provide notifications on on all the proposals. And, you know, a lot of them, they're not near a training route, they're not near radar, not not an issue. But the ones that are, we will enter that, the finding, the notice of presumed hazard, and that'll, that'll kick off a mitigation response team and we can have a dialogue and try to come up with reasonable mitigation. Sir, it also seems that most of the time you're able to get to a win-win situation here for both uh, military operations, the developer, uh, and, and maybe even the landowner, maybe a triple win. Uh, is that typically how these, that's the goal? That, that's always the goal. And that's, that's really what the, the 2011 statutes sets out is it like, as we talked earlier, it's a balancing act. It's not one, any one side gets uh, a win. It's trying to figure out feasible and affordable mitigation is what, what the, the statute, uh, the term it uses to, to resolve the issues. And sir, might you have any additional resources uh, that you could recommend to our listeners if they want to learn more about today's topic? Uh, the Department of Energy uh, has quite a lot of information on it. Uh, the wind farm industry also has, they have multiple different websites and, and reports. The, the technology is, is pretty amazing on on wind farms, how rapidly it's, it, it has advanced, how these structures are just gargantuan. And you have some of them that, for instance, that GE turbine that's going to be 850 feet tall, it has blades that are 367 feet long each. And that's it's just gargantuan. And I think we all driving down the interstate, we've seen the semis with the one turbine blade on it and, and just ogled our eyes about how big they were. And I think the trend is they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know how, I guess eventually there's there's probably some stress level that metal can't take that, that will eventually limit the size of what they can do. But it's just amazing how the technology is advancing. Yes, sir. And any final thoughts um, on today's topic you'd like to leave with our listeners? I, I think the, the main thought is it, this is a really fun JAG position to be in because you deal with on a day-to-day basis with operators. You deal very much with operational facts that that really are they're the driving force on on the results that we get. How, what the NORAD radar operators tell you how the radar will be affected, or what your aviators tell you flying routes will be affected. And so it's it's a very f- fun area of law to do. And and I think it's also in terms of the Air Force. Uh, it's a very valuable area of, of operate interface between operations and, and law. Well, thank you, sir, for coming on today. We really appreciate it, and we wish you the best with uh, everything you're doing for the rest of this year and into next year. Okay. All right. You have a good one. You too. That concludes our interview with Mr. Jim Canizzo. Here are three of my takeaways from the interview. Number one, we are in a new age of wind energy development. 
Today, wind energy is the largest source of renewable energy in the U.S. and continues to grow at an accelerating pace. As of 2020, there are approximately 60,000 wind turbines that generate over 100,000 megawatts of electricity spread across the U.S. By some sources, that is enough energy to supply around 30 million homes. The majority of these turbines are found on wind farms of increasing size and complexity in wind-rich areas in states such as Texas, Iowa, California, and Oklahoma. In Iowa and Kansas, for example, wind power is now the single largest source of energy at over 40% in each state, surpassing fossil fuel production. This energy output is quite remarkable considering 10 years ago wind energy accounted for only a few percentage points of U.S. energy production. In 2020, it's around 8% or so, and as Mr. Knizzo mentioned, future estimates show that wind energy will account for 35% or more by 2050. And this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. Countries in the European Union, such as Germany, have been world leaders in wind energy for decades, and China has invested heavily into wind energy production, where it is the current world leader with over 230,000 megawatts of wind energy, or more than double the U.S., It's safe to say that here at the beginning of 2021, the race is on to a carbon-neutral world with wind energy and other renewables like solar at the forefront of this sprint. This leads me to point number two. Wind energy development has increased the complexity on military operations. The growing production in wind energy development, including the size of individual turbines to the quantity of them on wind farms, coupled with the competition to build in wind-rich areas, has placed greater complexity and burden on the DoD and Air Force in managing military operations. Let's talk about the size of these turbines. Ten years ago, a turbine was around 300 to 400 feet, and within five years grew to 500 feet or so. Today, turbines on major wind farms average around 650 feet or so. And as mentioned in our interview, GE has a new massive turbine at 850 feet tall with blades over 350 feet, or about as long as the length of a football field, which is able to produce 12 megawatts of power or enough power to light 16,000 homes. That's one turbine powering 16,000 homes. To give some context, the Eiffel Tower is only about 200 feet taller, standing at 1,063 feet than this new GE turbine with moving blades. And according to GE, a wind farm of these massive turbines will be able to supply 1 million households with energy. To me, this highlights the new energy paradigm that is taking place. The sheer number of turbines continues to magnify as well. Normal wind farms might average 35 to 65 turbines, medium-sized farms at 65 to a few hundred turbines, and these new mega wind farms with a thousand turbines or more. And as Mr. Knizos said, you also can't just have turbines stacked against each other. Rather, they need to be spread out to reduce turbulence. And the spinning of the blades also causes friction on radar and other military assets. Further, wind farms can't be built just anywhere. These private wind energy firms look for wind-rich areas where we often already have military training routes and or NORAD radars and assets. So what does this all mean for military operations? Well, as Mr. Knizzo mentioned, competition by private energy firms to place ever more turbines of larger size and quantity in these wind-rich areas leads to greater legal and operational complexity. And Mr. Knizzo and his team work to find solutions through wind farm mitigation 
and other techniques within the parameters of the law to continue military operations while also trying to remain true to the intent of Congress to foster wind energy development. This leads me to the last point in number three. The wind energy boom is the result of collaboration between big government and big private energy. For the last decade or longer, the U.S. government has helped to spawn this burgeoning wind energy industry. The government has primarily done so through large tax incentives and breaks to offset the costs. For example, the government has helped through an energy tax credit that pays up to 30% of the costs. Without the government's tax credits, many to likely most of these projects, especially the early ones, would have never got off the ground. Further, as discussed, in 2011, Congress created the DOD Siting Clearinghouse as a way to beneficially solve conflicts between military operations and private energy development. As Mr. Canizzo mentioned, the goal of the program is feasible and affordable mitigation. Or in other words, big government is collaborating with big energy to ensure the integrity of military readiness and operations and continue to foster private energy development. It's like a symbolic dance of the nutcracker between big government and big business. And after many years of this, now renewables such as wind are starting to reach a certain parity with fossil fuels. And this trend is across the entire globe, not just in the U.S. If the trend continues as we believe it will, how and where we get energy in the next few decades will go more and more to renewables. And this will continue to have an ever-growing impact on military operations. I'd also like to mention an update that we became aware of post-recording. The wind energy tax credit was extended through 2021, which will continue to drive more wind energy development. Additionally, the environmental law team asked me to briefly highlight the important role that installation legal offices play in this entire process. SGAs and attorneys play a key role in mission sustainment by working closely with their operators to understand specific mission requirements, particularly as they apply to ranges and airspace areas away from the base, such as low-level military training routes. Performing that role enables installation legal offices to collaborate effectively with the environmental law and litigation experts to more accurately describe the operational requirements and precise potential adverse impacts to that particular installation's mission posed by energy development proposals. Many energy developers have former military consultants who can challenge the asserted requirements. So the mitigation response teams need to be able to articulate and defend with legal support the mission requirements. Another critical function is to directly advise installation commanders about the statutory provisions limiting authority to object to incompatible wind and solar energy development. As Mr. Canizzo explained, while the installation commander can assess the actual adverse impacts and recommend an objection, which is elevated through command channels to the Department of Air Force headquarters, only the DOD can formally lodge the objection with FAA as an unacceptable risk to national security. In closing, continue to stay apprised of this evolving energy landscape. Military members are the eyes and ears of the local mission, like wind farm mitigation issues, and base legal offices should engage with their operators to truly understand the mission and continue to build those relationships. And civilians can get involved through public discourse and hearings. Thank you for listening to another episode. If you like this episode, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and consider subscribing to the show. 
Last, if you have any interesting stories on law, leadership, or innovation, please reach out to the Professional Outreach Division at the Air Force JAG School to see if your idea might be a good fit for a podcast interview. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes, along with others, at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG board. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.